This morning's text, we will be in Acts chapter 23, and we will be reading the first 11 verses. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. May God be glorified by the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is with reverent hearts and grateful hearts that we come before you this morning and that we approach your holy word. We pray, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, give us insight, illuminate the meaning of these God-breathed words to our minds and convict our hearts with them and continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds to conform us more and more into the image of the blessed Son and the glorious God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of our hearts this day be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A while back in our study here of the book of Acts, you remember when we were in chapter 16, where the Holy Spirit was providentially, sovereignly directing Paul's path so that even though Paul was making certain plans, he was not able to go where he had wanted to go, planned to go. He wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. And when we were in that passage, you remember we spent some time thinking through the wisdom that God gives us in His Word regarding the will of God in our decision-making and in our lives. And we talked during that time, if you remember, about that remarkable man of prayer and faith named George Mueller, who lived in England in the 1800s. Mueller was a man whose life and and service to Christ 
and to the kingdom of God was uniquely characterized by prayer and by dependence on God and by His uncompromising commitment to the will of God, no matter what it was. And towards the end of his life, when his students asked him how he had lived this way for so long and and how he discerned the will of God in his life and in any particular situation he found himself in, Mueller talked about, of course, being grounded in the Word of God and in prayer. But remember the first step that he said that he took in ascertaining the will of God in any circumstance, in any decision, no matter how big or small it was, the first step was to prayerfully ensure, he said, that it really was God's will that he was devoted to and not his own. To make sure that he wasn't just praying and pleading with God to do what he wanted God to do which is easy for us to do often, isn't it? Instead of really saying, Thy will be done, what we're doing is we're praying and saying, God, I've got in mind what I want, and I'm asking you to make it happen for me. And Mueller said, you got to get out of that mindset first. And you've got to truly be asking God to reveal to you what God wants you to do. And give you the strength and the courage to do it, whatever it is, no matter what the cost. Mueller said, nine-tenths of the difficulties of understanding God's will for your life, nine-tenths of them are overcome when our hearts are truly ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. Whenever one is in this state, it is usually just a little ways to the knowledge of what God's will is. And it's just, as, I, as we approach this text again today, I think it's so critically important from, uh, for us to, to learn from that wisdom of ensuring, not just in big, difficult decisions, but, but in all of life, in the way that we live, even in the mundane things, in the moment by moment, in the day by day, to learn this wisdom of, uh, of ensuring that we're truly seeking to get our hearts into that kind of a place, into such a state that, that in Mueller's words, we have no will of our own. That we aren't the final authority in our own lives. That we're not just looking to God to be sort of a cosmic butler or genie that we summon to grant us our will. But that we are truly ready to do His will, whatever it may be and whatever the cost. And, and it's when we're living that way, when we are devoted as true servants to the will of our true master and we don't try to reverse that polarity, it's when we're living that way that God will accomplish amazing things not only for us, but especially through us for the cause of His kingdom and to the praise of His glory. Like He did through George Mueller's life and like He did through the life of the Apostle Paul. And he's not always going to do the same things for us or through us that he did in Mueller's life or in Paul's life, but he will nonetheless do things through our lives if we are truly yielded to his will that will confound our own expectations, that will absolutely exceed and transcend our own abilities, and that will leave us in awe of 
his great wisdom and his great power and will leave us glorifying his name. And that's how we want to live. Towards the end of his life there, George Mueller said to a small group of dear, trusted friends who had come around him to minister to him as he was, his health was failing, he said to them that it all very simply comes down to this. Here's his words, quote, Trust in God. Depend only on Him. Wait on Him. Believe on Him. And expect great things from Him. Faint not if those blessings tarry. And above all, rely only on the merits of our faithful Lord and Savior. So that according to them and to nothing of your own strength, the prayers that you offer and the work that you do may be acceptable to God. And I thought about that statement this week as I was thinking through and meditating on this passage here in Acts 23 to which we're returning today. Because in this passage, the Holy Spirit reveals not only how the Apostle Paul truly lived his own life in just that kind of way that Mueller was describing, but also how when he did, how gloriously God worked through Paul as he was devoted to the will of God, whatever it may be. So, let's reorient to this passage today, because last week, as we plunged into this passage, Acts 23 verses 1 through 11, we got all the way into the first verse, where we spent all our time contemplating one single word, the word conscience there. In Acts 23, verse 1. So you remember, Paul had been accosted by this angry, riotous mob of bloodthirsty, unbelieving Jewish zealots who dragged him out of the temple and tried to beat him to death before the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias. He was the commander over the thousand Roman troops that were garrisoned in the Antonia fortress adjacent to the temple, and they came and they hauled Paul out of that crowd before the crowd could kill him. And then Lysias, in an attempt to understand what it was that Paul had done to make everybody so upset, almost had Paul flogged until he figured out that Paul was a Roman citizen, and so it was illegal to do that to him. So next, he tried to sit Paul down in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, hoping that they would be able to uncover and reveal and explain to him exactly what it was that Paul was guilty of. And so, that's where we are here. As Paul came before this Sanhedrin, this ruling council of Jewish elders, verse 1 says, he looked intently at them. He held their gaze. He looked them straight in the eye. He had no fear. He had no sense of being intimidated by them because much, much more than he cared about what they might do to him. Much, much more than he cared about what they thought of him. He cared far more about following his conscience about doing what God wanted him to do, about living according to God's will and for the sake of God's glory. And he knew that he had done that, so he had nothing to truly fear. And so, we saw last time 
that's how Paul appealed to the Sanhedrin there in verse 1. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And as I said last time, as soon as Paul said that, he put all of them, the whole Sanhedrin council, he put all of them on the defensive because they were accusing Paul of opposing God. Remember? Opposing God's law, opposing God's people, opposing the temple. But when Paul says, no, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience, what he was implying was that they were the ones, not him, who were actually opposing God. And so, verse 2 now, because that's the implicit message that they received from Paul, Ananias, the high priest who's the president of the Sanhedrin council, he understood that very clearly. He he took Paul's statement exactly that way. You're implying that we're the ones who are fighting against God. And so that's why he ordered the ones who were standing closest to Paul to strike Paul on the mouth. And the word strike there means a lot more than a slap. They didn't just slap him across the face. This is the same word, in fact, to strike. This is the same word that Luke uses back in chapter 22 and verse 32 when the bloodthirsty mob of angry Jews outside the temple were trying to beat Paul to death. That word, beat, is the same word, strike, here. In verse 2 of chapter 23, Ananias ordered those men, notice it's plural, multiple men, so probably multiple strikes, to punch Paul in the mouth, hard as they could, violently. Now Josephus, who's a Roman historian that recorded so much invaluable information about this particular area in Judea and this particular era of time when when all of this was going on. He fills in a lot of the background of, of how things worked during this time. And Josephus actually writes about this particular high priest, Ananias. Now, this, of course, is not the same Ananias that Jesus had sent Paul to see back in Acts chapter 9. It's the same name, but very, very different people. This man, Ananias, Josephus tells us, served as the high priest in Jerusalem in the temple and presided over the Sanhedrin for about 12 years, beginning in the year 47 A.D. And so the events here in Acts 23 would have been taking place towards the end of Ananias' tenure as the high priest. And Josephus writes that Ananias was one of the absolutely most corrupt, evil, and cruel high priests to ever serve in that office in the temple. Ananias, Josephus says, frequently stole from the tithes that were coming into the temple, which were supposed to be used to support the, the common priests who worked in the temple, that's how they bought food. That's how they lived. And instead of allowing those priests to have that money that they were entitled to to live their own lives and buy food for themselves, Ananias would just appropriate most of it for himself and make himself rich. And if anybody 
confronted him about that or said anything about that or tried to resist him in that, Ananias would just have them beaten severely, savagely. So this is a man who had absolutely no compunction about using violence in order to further his own interests, and that's what he's doing here. He's commanding men to beat Paul violently in the mouth, in the, in the point of his body where this speech that Ananias is unhappy with is coming from. And so Paul's lips would have been swollen, they would have been split, maybe even some teeth had been loosened or knocked out. His mouth would be filled with blood because of this assault. And after that assault, reflexively, instinctively, Paul looks at Ananias and says in verse 3, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting here judging me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, Paul's probably referring both to Jewish rabbinical law and to Roman law, both in pointing out to Ananias that he's violating the law himself by ordering Paul to be struck like that, beat like that. The bottom line is, he's calling Ananias a hypocrite, isn't he? For standing in judgment over him in reference to the law while violating the law himself. And that's why he calls Ananias a whitewashed wall and says that God's going to strike him for his hypocrisy. That phrase, whitewashed wall, is an explicit reference to Old Testament scripture, which, of course, everyone who sat on the Sanhedrin Council would recognize immediately. They're very, very familiar and knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures. This one comes from the book of Ezekiel. And you know the book of Ezekiel, of course, right? Judgment had fallen on Judah and Jerusalem because of all of the idolatry and all of the immorality that for a long time had been festering among God's people and in God's city and in God's temple. The grossest forms of paganism and idolatry and immorality and wickedness that you can imagine were all being wantonly practiced, not just in Jerusalem, but in the temple of God itself. And so God's judgment had finally fallen on them. God's patience had run out and He poured out judgment. And through the prophets, God spoke condemning words and articulated the reasons why he was pouring out judgment all through the book of Ezekiel. And one of those reasons why he was pouring out judgment on the temple and on Jerusalem and on the people, one of those reasons in Ezekiel chapter 13 was that there were prophets in Jerusalem who were presuming to speak in the name of the Lord, who were presuming to say to the people, this is what God says. But they were speaking lies to the people. They were deceiving the people and they were prophesying falsely. And the lies that they were telling the people were in service to allowing all of that spiritual rot and decay and immorality to continue. They were saying, don't worry. God's not bothered by the way you're living your lives. God loves you no matter what you do. God's not angry about anything you're doing. There's no danger in anything you're doing. There's peace among you. Don't worry. 
And so God said to those false prophets, because you have uttered falsehood, because you've claimed to see visions that were false, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. And listen to what he says then to these false prophets in Ezekiel 13 and verse 10. He tells Ezekiel, who's the true prophet, to speak his word to the false prophets and say this, quote, because... They have misled my people, saying peace when there really is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. This is where the imagery come from. Say to those who smear the wall with whitewash that the wall shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind will break out, and when the wall falls, will it not be said, where is the coating with which you have smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath shall make a full end of their wickedness, and I will break down this wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it to the ground, so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you will perish in the midst of it, that you will know that I am the Lord. Thus will I expend my wrath upon this wall, And upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it, the prophets of Israel who prophesied falsely concerning Jerusalem, and thought they saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. So God says, everything that you've been doing, all this paganism, all this idolatry, all this immorality, all this wickedness, all this sin is like a big wall that you've built up. A big disgusting wall of spiritual rot and decay. And these false prophets have come and slathered it with whitewash in order to make that grotesquely corrupt thing appear to be clean and pure. You remember Jesus said something similar to the Pharisees, right? He called them whitewashed tombs. They made themselves look clean and beautiful on the outside, but inside they were full of corruption and decay, of greed and hypocrisy in their own hearts. Outwardly, they conformed their behavior to God's law very, very rigorously, but where it mattered in their hearts, they didn't love God. And they didn't love anybody else. And they were just full of sinful greed and pride. And that's what God was saying to the false prophets in Ezekiel's day too. While they claimed to be speaking for God, they were lying. And while they claimed to be prophesying in the people's best interests, they were actually leading the people straight into the gaping jaws of judgment and destruction. So they were hypocrites. And so God was going to pour out a torrential deluge of divine judgment on them and on all of the sin and all the wickedness that they'd whitewashed in Jerusalem and in the temple. And see, that's that's what Paul is invoking here in Acts 23 against Ananias. You're a whitewashed wall. 
Paul cries out. You make yourself look good, but inside, you're not the real deal. You're a hypocrite. You pretend to care about God's holiness and righteousness, but look at you, you're violating God's law yourself and justifying it because of your own self-righteousness. So this is the this this kind of just comes bursting out of Paul. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile that just visceral outburst here with what Paul says in other places in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, where he says, When we are reviled, we bless in return. Does that seem like what Paul's doing here? What about the example of Jesus? who Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he was suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept his mouth shut. Does it seem like Paul's following that example here? It doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't is because he isn't. And the reason why he isn't is simply because he's not Jesus. He's not the sinless Son of God who was perfect and spotless and unblemished in everything that he ever did and said. Paul, here in the heat of this moment, reacted viscerally, without thinking first, in the flesh instead of in the Spirit. Now, on the one hand, he was correct, right? He was correct that Ananias was violating the law. He was correct that Ananias was therefore acting hypocritically. He was correct that God hates hypocrisy. But in saying what he said, the way he said it, he wasn't acting according to wisdom. He was out of line. And he ends up admitting it here, doesn't he? Some of the bystanders who were looking on said to Paul, Would you revile God's high priest? Which was against the law according to God's word in the book of Exodus. No matter who they were or what they did, if God had installed them in that position, it was unlawful to speak against them in that kind of a way. And they point this out to Paul, and Paul immediately changes his tune, doesn't he? He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, and he quotes it, From Exodus chapter 22, it is written, you're right, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's the will of God. And Paul was acknowledging he'd done something wrong according to the standard of God's word. Now, Paul hadn't been to Jerusalem for a long time. Paul hadn't been in the presence of the Sanhedrin for a really, really long time. And before Paul was a Christian, remember when he himself was an unbelieving Pharisee before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road? That was a long time ago, and there had been a different high priest. And so Paul didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest. This, remember, is an informal gathering of the Sanhedrin. They didn't convene themselves formally. 
Lysias just asked them to come and shed some light on what it was that Paul had done wrong. So Ananias wasn't wearing the high priestly robe that he normally would in a formal gathering that would instantly have identified him to Paul as the high priest. So Paul, very simply, he's being honest, I just, I didn't, so I, I didn't recognize that Ananias was actually the high priest. And whether or not I was ignorant of that fact doesn't matter, what I did was wrong. It was against God's law. So see what Paul does here? As soon as this is pointed out to him, he immediately sees his error and he backtracks this outburst. And I got to wonder, is that what I would have done? Well, he shouldn't be the high priest, should he? He's not much of a high priest, is he? Who made him high priest? How easy it is, right, to, to justify fleshly attitudes and behaviors because of the sins of others. How easy it is to give ourselves permission to act according to the flesh because we think that's appropriate given what somebody's done to us. The Bible just calls it returning evil for evil and Jesus forbids it. Jesus says something about turning the other cheek which is not what Paul did here. But as soon as he realizes his error, he steps out of the flesh and starts walking immediately again according to the Spirit. How easy it is for us to give ourselves permission to return evil for evil. To be driven by self-interest rather than by the glory of God to be driven by selfish pride, to be driven by fleshly anger and feel like it's just righteous indignation and I'm God's vessel of wrath towards this person who sinned against me when it's really not God's glory you're concerned about, it's your own. How easy it is to walk like that according to the flesh instead of according to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul lacked those things in this moment. We lack those things in many moments when things happen and circumstances are such and people do certain things to us and we react. And instead of following the example of our Lord who when he was reviled, did not revile in return, who when he was being beaten, uttered not a word, who when he was suffering, uttered no threats, who was so singularly devoted to the will of the Father that he said, not my will but yours be done, who said of those Roman soldiers who hung him on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, And who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, how easy it is for us not to act like Him, but to act according to our flesh. Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross because He cared infinitely more about the will of His Father and the glory of God and the mercy of God towards other people, towards undeserving sinners, he cared far more about all of that than he cared about 
how people were treating him. How he, as the incarnate God, deserved in actuality to be treated. Or any rights of his own, or his own comfort, or his own safety, or his own security, or his suffering. He cared far more about the glory of God and the mercy of others, or mercy for others, than he cared about anything about himself. Because even though he was God eternally, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let go of his eternal divine right to be treated, to be honored as the God who he eternally was and forever is. And instead, he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He never stopped being God, but as God, he willingly took the form of a servant and became born in the likeness of men. And being found in the form of a human being humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And that's the only example that our sovereign Lord and God has set for us to follow. That is the only pattern that will be born out of the fruit of the Spirit being forged in us. And out of that fruit of the Spirit governing our attitudes and our behaviors. So here's Paul. Put yourself in his shoes. He's been beaten nearly to death unjustly by a mob of angry unbelievers. He's been falsely accused. He's been punched viciously in the mouth unjustly on the orders of a wicked, corrupt, hypocritical high priest. And he has initially and instinctively and, and, and reflexively reacted less than perfectly. But as soon as he realizes what he's done, as soon as he sees the contrast of his own response, tainted by his own sin, with the holiness of God, very quickly, very humbly, he changes his tune. And the reason is because, bottom line, Paul saw his attitudes and behaviors in relationship to God's holiness and God's character and God's law, especially as exemplified in Jesus, instead of seeing his attitude and behaviors in relationship to the attitudes and behaviors of other people, like the wicked high priest. And that's what we have to do, isn't it? That's what mature Christians do, whose lives are full of and defined by the fruit of God, the Holy Spirit. We don't give ourselves permission to act according to our flesh relative to what other people have done. We are constrained to live according to the fruit of the Spirit because the standard is not other people. The standard is God's glory and holiness. So, Paul has been reoriented now to the glory of God, to the will of God, to the law of God, to the holiness of God. And in that frame of mind and heart now, not walking in the flesh, now once again walking in the Spirit, not driven by his own impulses and desires and rights, but driven by the sovereign purposes of God once again, right? Not captive to his own will, but now again to the will of his Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul's once again in the position to see God work marvelously through him. And that is the lens 
that we need to read the rest of this passage through. God has, I believe, very, very wisely allowed Paul to slip, to take one step according to his own flesh, and then very mercifully constrained Paul to immediately change course and walk once again according to the Spirit. Which is his disposition now in verse 6. He's not attuned to himself. He's not attuned to his own needs or rights or desires or will. He's fixed now again on the will and the purpose and the glory of Christ. And in that frame, Luke records in verse 6, that Paul looks upon his situation there. He's all alone. He's bound. He's not free in the presence of the Sanhedrin. And he's able to see that situation Not so much as an affliction which has to do with him as an opportunity which has to do with Christ. That's how you got to see your life. That's how you got to see your circumstances and your situations. Is God sovereign over them or not? Is He able to keep you from suffering or not? Was He able to make something that didn't go well go the way you wanted to or not? Of course He is, but He didn't. And the question is, Why? And the answer is, in order to get you out of yourself and focused on Him and say, God, what are you doing? What is your purpose? What is your will? What opportunity does this difficulty and this hardship and this affliction and this suffering provide for me to glorify you? That's what Paul's doing here. Verse 6, Luke records, When Paul perceived that one part of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brother, I'm a Pharisee. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. You remember that before he was a Christian, Paul had been educated under Gamaliel, the, the famous, most famous Jewish rabbi. Paul had been raised up as a Pharisee himself, as someone so devoted to the law and the Scriptures and personal holiness that that outwardly at least he was not able to be challenged. And even now as a Christian, Paul shared still a lot of fundamental core beliefs that the Pharisees held to be true. Luke explains this. Remember that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that Paul is facing here, was dominated by two primary factions, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, kind of like two denominations within Judaism that shared some common ground, but but they differed in some really significant ways doctrinally, theologically. The Sadducees believed with regard to the Old Testament scriptures, we They believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament, we call those books the Pentateuch. The Sadducees believed that only the Pentateuch was authoritative as the Word of God and that the other books in the Old Testament were not trustworthy or authoritative. They were interesting, but they weren't authoritative. So that's what they believed. But the Pharisees believed that all of the Old Testament scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, were the authoritative Word of God. And so for the for the Sadducees, any doctrine 
that they couldn't find explicitly revealed and written in those first five books. They didn't believe. They didn't believe was true. And for them, Luke explains here, that included belief in an afterlife, heaven or hell, belief in any reality of or possibility of a dead person being resurrected, being raised to life once again. Luke says also they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits, which is curious because there are plenty of examples of angels and spiritual beings all over the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Especially Genesis and Exodus and Numbers. But the Sadducees, it seems like, were, 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 were skeptics in their minds. They tended to doubt supernatural things. And so they denied the existence of angels or the possibility of people being resurrected from the dead. But the Pharisees, and Paul knew this full well because he's one of them, from his own past, Paul knows the Pharisees accepted and believed in and taught all of those things on the basis of the authority of all of the Old Testament scriptures. They believed in angels, they believed in spirits, they believed in the afterlife, heaven and hell, they believed in the resurrection of people who had died, like the widow's son that Elijah raised in the Old Testament. And they believed correctly that their future hope in eternity, after their lives in this world, that their future eternal hope absolutely depended on their being raised from the dead unto everlasting life. That's what the Pharisees believed. And even though they didn't understand fully how, they did understand that this future hope of of everlasting life, body and soul, was inexorably tied to the Messiah who the Old Testament prophesied of. They believed all of that, and so their big problem, right, was that in all of their arrogant, sinful, self-righteous zeal, these Pharisees had rejected Jesus as the one who does all of that when he had come 30 years earlier. As the one who is able to give us eternal life, body and soul, and eternal hope in the presence of God and glory. They rejected him. But at the same time, in spite of their misunderstanding, in spite of the rejection of Jesus, the Pharisees still shared some of this important common ground with Paul and with the Christian faith in terms of a belief in heaven and hell, a belief of angels and demons and spirits, a belief in the resurrection of, of physically dead people unto new physical life, and the fact that the hope of heaven depends upon that resurrection. And so do you see what Paul is doing here in verse 6? Paul was, to put it in the words of my seminary professor, Dennis Johnson, Paul was putting the spotlight on the disagreement between the Sadducees and the Pharisees in order to show his fellow Pharisees that his Christian convictions in these ways were not contradictory to their beliefs, but were in fact nothing other than a faithful extension of their understanding of Judaism. He's saying, brothers... Everything that you hold true about your hope eternally, I have found the fulfillment of. See, so Paul, 
having been falsely accused, having been viciously beaten the day before, having been bound with Roman chains, having been dragged here before the Sanhedrin, who's made up of, 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 of men who reject Christ, and having been savagely and unjustly punched in the mouth, Paul's had his perspective reoriented, so much so by the Holy Spirit, that instead of perceiving his situation like we probably would, right, as an absolute catastrophe, a disaster. Instead of perceiving this situation like that, now Paul perceives it instead through the lens of the sovereign will and glory of God. He sees it as a divinely orchestrated opportunity to testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of everything that the Pharisees have hoped for all along. Basically, oh, oh, I'm here to preach the gospel. I see. That's why I'm here. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial, he says to the Pharisees of the council. Because his entire hope and his entire faith, his entire life are all based on his absolute trust and belief that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah who was raised from the dead in order to give eternal life to all who believe in him. So see, where the Pharisees had condemned Paul for forsaking God and forsaking God's law, forsaking God's word, Paul sees an opening here. Paul sees an opportunity here to show these Pharisees how in reality, as a Christian now, he has remained faithful to some of their most core beliefs all along and found the fulfillment of those beliefs and hopes in Christ Jesus. I haven't abandoned the faith. I found the one who realizes the ultimate end of that faith. Paul had had his own eyes opened by the risen Christ, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, Paul exclaims the great reality that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who have died physically. Now, the first fruits was an offering that was rendered to God in the Old Testament at the time when the harvest was being brought in. The first fruit was the first and the best part of the crops. They'd, they'd go out and they'd harvest a, a bunch of grain, and before they harvested the rest of it, they'd take the best of it, and they'd, they'd, offer, they'd burn it on the altar and offer it up to God as a sacrifice to express gratitude to God for allowing the crops to grow in the first place, for for providing for his people. And they'd also do that in faith that God would continue to faithfully provide for his people. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul Paul pictures the great hope of eternal life, which the Pharisees have, have fostered for generations from the Old Testament scriptures. The Paul pictures it in 1 Corinthians 15, the great hope of eternal life as, as a marvelous eternal harvest of the resurrected eternal lives of all of the people who God graciously gives that eternal blessing to. And he says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of that everlasting harvest of eternal life. The first and the best 
of a new covenant people of God who will all be raised in Him unto everlasting life. To the great hope that the Pharisees held to from the Old Testament Scriptures. So Paul, by the grace of Almighty God, Paul had discovered that Jesus had been raised as the first fruits of the final resurrection harvest. And Paul knew that the Pharisees also believed that the Almighty Creator God, who made human beings in His own image, and who made us as people who are composed of bodies and spirits, the Pharisees believed that God would not allow death to prevail in the end. That God who made us would not allow death to be victorious or to conquer or to have the last word. That's what the Pharisees believed and Paul knew that Jesus Christ who died on that Roman cross is the one who put death itself to death when He was raised on the third day in victory over death. And see, all of that, that hope of a future resurrection of the dead, that hope of everlasting life in the presence of God, both body and soul, all of that, that was, that was the hope that Paul had always had. Even before he was a Christian, Paul had this hope as a Pharisee. And now that he's been encountered by the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, now he's come to know not some different hope, not that his former beliefs were false, now he's come to know that this great hope he's had all along was fulfilled in Christ alone. And here now, he's, he's got this unimaginable, divinely ordained opportunity to proclaim that to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees. And so that's what he does. He doesn't say, my being here is a catastrophe and my prayer to God is to get me out of here to save my own skin and to stop my suffering. That's not the most important thing, see? Paul says, God ordained this trial and so I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to understand that God must have ordained it for a reason because God allows everything. God ordains everything. God does everything for a reason. Why am I here? What's God's will for me here in this tight jam, in this hard spot, in this painful situation? What opportunity can I find to glorify Him? Isn't that the way we ought to look at our lives if we truly believe that God is sovereign over everything? It's all about His glory, not about my comfort. God's saying, here, I'm giving you an opportunity. You just have to seek what it is prayerfully and according to the wisdom of my word. That's what Paul did, and immediately chaos ensued in the council. Luke says a massive dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In God's providence, some of the scribes of the Pharisees, in contending theologically with the Sadducees who disagreed with all of this, in God's providence, some of the legal scholars among the Pharisees actually rose up in defense of Paul. (laughs) How's that? 
They actually pronounce him innocent here. We can't find anything wrong with him. And they even entertain the possibility that the things that Paul is speaking of were revealed to him by a spirit or by an angel. What if God revealed this to him through an angel? What, shouldn't we be listening? Look how God's working. And going forward, God would do this again and again in Paul's life and sovereignly provide Paul with several exonerations at the hands of unbelieving people before Paul got to Rome, which was his ultimate destination. At the end of chapter 23, the Roman tribune here, Lysias, who's pulled in before the Sanhedrin, would end up sending Paul along to the governor, Felix, up in Caesarea to be tried because Lysias couldn't figure it out. But when he sends Paul to Felix, he sends him with a letter, and the letter says that he, Lysias, found Paul to be guilty of nothing deserving death or even imprisonment. I don't know why we've got him. He hadn't done anything wrong. Then in chapter 25, after Paul's been in Caesarea in prison for two years, Felix's successor, Festus, would say exactly the same thing. He hadn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. He shouldn't even be here. In chapter 26, when Paul's case gets processed up to the king, Agrippa, Agrippa says, Paul should have been set free a long time ago. But Paul wasn't set free, was he? Again, from Jerusalem, he would, as we'll see when we get into the rest of Acts, he would be taken up to Caesarea, spend two years there in prison, be tried there under Roman law by Festus, who would say, I don't know, can't find anything wrong. And then Paul would appeal to Festus and say, not to let him go. Since Lysias has already said that he's not guilty of anything even deserving of imprisonment. How easy would it have been and how inclined would you have been to say, so let me go. But Paul says, no, what I want you to do is have me tried before Caesar himself in Rome. And Festus would go, okay, whatever. <laughs> you appeal to Caesar, I'll send you to Caesar. And off to Rome, Paul would go with Luke and another Christian brother at his side. And that journey to Rome would include a raging two-week storm and a shipwreck that could have ended Paul's life. But providentially, he finally was brought alive to Rome, where he lived under house arrest. Because he's under trial technically, but he's not done anything wrong that we can find, so we'll let him rent a home and live there for two years waiting to be brought before the emperor, before Caesar, who was at that time Nero. That's what Paul wanted. And during that time that he's under house arrest in Rome, what's Paul doing? Is he moping around? I've been so unfairly treated and I shouldn't even be here and this is lousy and why are you doing this to me, God? Hardly. Nope. During the two years of house imprisonment in Rome, he preaches the gospel to whoever, whoever Luke could go and get to come and listen. He wrote the letters of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon that 2,000 years later we have as the living active Word of God in our Bibles still. And then by God's good providence, 
they let him go. They said, look, Nero doesn't really have time, just you can go. So instead of going into hiding then, Paul continues to do what he's always done. He goes to the island of Crete. He sees that the churches there are in disorder. He puts Titus in charge of getting things cleaned up. Then he goes to Corinth. He wrote, wrote the letter to Titus in Corinth. Then he gets arrested again because he won't stop preaching the gospel and stirring up the Jews. So they bring him back to Rome. And this time they, they don't put him under house arrest. They throw him into a filthy Roman maritime prison where he writes the letters to Timothy that we have in our Bibles, knowing that this time the sentence isn't, isn't going to go well for him and his life is likely going to end. Now listen, see, here's the point. King Agrippa had said to Governor Festus that if Paul had not appealed to be sent to Caesar in Rome, he would have been set free. So why didn't Paul do that? Paul didn't want to be set free. Why not? Because of verse 11. Because here in Jerusalem, after fixing his focus on the will, on the purposes, on the glory of God, and seeing this hearing before the Sanhedrin as a divinely orchestrated opportunity to testify of the resurrected Christ to the Pharisees, after that, Jesus, verse 11, appeared to Paul, stood by Paul and said, take courage. Take courage because... Because you did good and now you get to go home? Nope. (laughs) Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. See, Paul's got his marching orders, right? From the king of kings himself. So so when Festus and Agrippa say, "We, we should just set you free, he goes, no, no, I'm supposed to go to Rome. Send me to Rome. I need to go to Rome. Try me before Caesar, whatever it takes to get to Rome, because Jesus says, i got to go to Rome. Because the big goal is not my comfort or my safety or my security or my freedom or my rights. It's the glory of Christ through me. Now, we don't have the advantage that Paul had, of course, right? Of seeing Christ appear to us visibly in order to tell us immediately what the will of God is in any given situation. He doesn't do that. He doesn't come to us in visions. He doesn't appear in our immediate presence. He doesn't speak to us audibly because now the Word of God is complete and it is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. The point for us today is this. The point for us today is not to covet Paul's experience of the immediate presence of Christ appearing directly to us to tell us what to do in precise detail. The point for us is to cultivate the attitude of Paul, the posture of Paul, the disposition of Paul. To be truly in the state, in George Mueller's words, of being ready to do the will of God, whatever it may be, rather than looking to God chiefly to grant us our own will. Is that how you pray? God, here's what I want, and you're the one that's going to give it to me. Or, God, show me through this hard circumstance what your will is in it. And what opportunities there might be for me to glorify you. Paul prayed and 
2 Corinthians 12, three times for whatever that thorn in his flesh was to be removed. And God wouldn't remove it so that Paul would know. That he doesn't need the thorn removed to be okay. All he needs is the grace of God with the thorn to be okay. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. The thorns there as my merciful way of helping you learn that. This is what we need to cultivate. This is what God uses the trials of our lives to help us cultivate. This disposition where we can be truly focused as our chief priority on the glory of Christ, even if His glory will come through our weakness, through our suffering, through our loss. That's why Paul appealed to Festus to send him to Rome. Because there, in prison, was his greatest opportunity to testify to the glory of the risen Christ. Amen? So let's pray together today for God the Holy Spirit to cultivate in us this priority, this devotion to the will of God. Last week we sang, May the mind of Christ my Savior, right? Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory, right? May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. May His beauty rest upon me, as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only Him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, that is our prayer, that we would so trust You, that we would so place ourselves as an infant child in the hands of loving parents, implicitly leaning upon not our own understanding, but Your goodness, Your sovereign purposes, Your will and Your grace, that we would so trust You, Father, that we would seek Your will, whatever it would be, and that we would follow Your path no matter where it would lead, and that we would count the cost of glorifying You no matter how steep that cost would be for us that we would see our trials and our sufferings not through the lens of self and that we would not allow ourselves to cultivate fleshly attitudes in response to those trials, anger and frustration and bitterness and rage, discontentment and despair, but Father, trusting You, we would cultivate the fruit of the Spirit and that we would be able to see whatever opportunities You have for us, not only for our own personal growth, but to be used as Your vessels to bring the glorious Word of Christ to bear in the lives of others. Father, as You till the soil of our souls, which is often painful for us, would You cultivate this fruit, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.